baby, pray for wisdom. I just like a farmer prays for rain. I knew that I must have it to survive in this life. So I took a look inside me. To my left and to my right. Saw people full of wisdom on the ride in my life, and it started to come clear. I began to understand that my prayer would be an answer. It's all part of God's plan that if we walk with the wise, we will grow wise. I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into our message. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, again, just everything you've done thus far. You continually amaze me. And Lord, as we just come out of this time of worship, Lord, we know your spirit is still here and you're still wanting to speak. There's a message that you've, you've laid out for us today, God, that is an important message for each and every one of us. It's a challenging message, but it also is an invitation for us to grow and to experience you, to take steps in our faith journey. So I pray, God, that our hearts would be open and our ears would be ready to hear. Our minds would understand, Lord. You give us ears to hear and a heart that can understand, Father, that will discern. That, Lord, we wouldn't reject or kind of defend against what the Spirit speaks, God, but you would pierce our hearts, Lord, and that we would brought to, be brought to humility that we'd respond, Lord, and we'd take necessary steps to grow in our relationship with you, to grow in our faith. So not only will Jesus receive the glory, but people's lives that we come in contact with God will change because of the testimony and the power that's at work within us. So speak now, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're in week two of our series, Walk with the Wise. This is our study in the book of Proverbs. Uh, there's a proverb that says, if you walk with the wise, you will grow wise. And it just so happens that King Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. One day, uh, God came to him and said, Solomon, I'm going to grant you a wish. So I believe, to my knowledge, is the only guy God ever did this for. He said, I'm going to grant you a wish. What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And so God not only gave Solomon wisdom, but he made him the wealthiest man to ever exist on the planet. And uh, his, his kingdom and his wealth are legendary. Even the, the legends of like the Knights Templar and, and even the Masons are connected back to trying to discover the wealth and the secrets of Solomon. I mean, this guy had everything he could possibly imagine and more. And with his wisdom, God moved through the Holy Spirit in his life to record for us wise sayings in the book of Proverbs. And then there were other men and uh, people in the day that also wrote Proverbs and, and wise sayings, and they put them together in the book of Proverbs for us today. And so since Solomon is a pretty wise guy and God, you know, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit is pretty wise and and they'd be great people to hang out with. I figured, you know, we could gain some wisdom from them. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a walk with these guys for this series and gain some wisdom for our lives. And today we're going to be talking about the subject of influences. Somebody say influences. 
influences. Wisdom for influences. And the reason is we are inundated each and every day with influences, whether we realize it or not. According to um, a website, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's adioma.com. Um, on average, we live for 78.3 years. Most of us um, will interact with at least three new people on a daily basis every day of our life. Now, if we start just beginning at age five to make the math simple, and we assume that we interact with those three people, those new people each day, if you look at 365 days a year plus leap year, that's really 365.24, in total over a course of 78.3 years, that would roughly equal out to a roughly 80,000 people you would come in contact with over the course of your life, new people. 80,000 potential influences in your life. That's a lot of people. On average, also, our lives, uh, according to the Nielsen Report in the United States, adults are watching at least five hours and four minutes of television per day. That's a lot of television. Five hours and four minutes of TV a day. If you look at, uh, that's 35.5 hours a week, if you do the math, that's slightly more than 77 days per year. So out of the 365 days you live this year, if you live the average of television watching, you will waste 77 of those days just watching TV, absorbing that influence. A report released this year by Common Sense Media said children ages, uh, children up to age eight spend an average of two hours and 19 minutes every day on screen media, that's tablets, phones, et cetera. The lion's share of that time is occupied by TV and video game viewing alone. It takes up to 72% of the screen time. So if you do the math, that's about 803 hours per year, which equals 33.5 hours a day, or of the 33.5 days of the year on screen time for kids. It might be difficult to nail down the exact figure, but 90%, according to the study, of the mobile time is spent on using apps. According to Comscore, American adult smartphone users spend an average of 73.8 hours a month on apps, which comes to a little under 2 hours 30 minutes a day. That would equal 839.5 hours a year or 35 days a year using apps on the phone. Common Sense Media also talks about teenagers spend an average of nine hours a day online compared to the six hours for those age eight to 12 and 50 minutes for kids between zero and eight. So teenagers waste essentially 136.9 days of their year on their cell phone and uh, the younger kids 91.25 days a year on their cell phone. So these are averages. A new study from the U.S. Bureau and Labor Statistics shows the average American actually only reads 19 minutes a day compared to our screen time. Young people spend even less time with written word, according to this study. That averages out to less than three days of the year. If you combine these latest statistics of reading that says only 19% uh, of churchgoers, now hear this, right? We're talking about you know mobile usage and only about three minutes a day reading. Only 19% of people who say they attend church regularly, 19% read their Bible regularly. 
If the average is three minutes a day reading, only 19% of the people that are reading actually read their Bible in church. And we can see why spiritual growth is in decline, why people aren't knocking down the doors to find a church to attend. People believe in God, but they just don't know what the Bible says. They're influenced by other sources. There's so many influences in our lives, but the majority of the influences we're inviting into our lives are not compelling us to know God more, to honor God more, or to live for Him as a holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God, to honor Him with our lives. No, it's quite the opposite. The majority of influences that we're allowing into our lives are influences that motivate or compel us to seek our own satisfaction, to live for our own pleasure, to our own success, to agree with what our world tells us is true or to agree with the way our world tells us we should think and believe and keep us heading down a path that ultimately leaves us dissatisfied and even more broken. There was a point in Israel's past, the nation of Israel, when they arrived at a similar juncture, when people did not really know God. I mean, you'd think God led this nation out of the Red Sea. He did all these miracles. Moses had the Ten Commandments. But after so many hundreds and hundreds of years, they got to a point in their history where the people, they knew of God, but they didn't really know God. And they did not fear him enough to walk in his ways in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, this is what the prophet writes to the people. God is speaking through the prophet, and he says, My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Since you priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Since you've forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. We look at what the, the prophet is saying to the nation of Israel. Even their religious people, their religious leaders, didn't know God and weren't fearing the Lord. And, and I look at this verse, and it's revealing to us that destruction comes. They were being destroyed. They were experiencing all these difficulties and trials because destruction comes when we don't know God. Destruction comes when we don't know God, and we make destructive choices and decisions because we allow something other than His truth to influence us in our decisions and in our actions. When we allow our emotions to guide the way, or when we allow the philosophies and customs of this world to lead our lives. Another translation of this verse says, destruction comes for a lack of knowledge and because you reject the knowledge of God. We lack knowledge. Why? Because we do not fear the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning or foundation of understanding. And we're making destructive decisions in our lives because ultimately we're not fearing the Lord. We're not fearing the Lord because we do not know the Lord. Therefore, we reject this knowledge because ultimately we really don't want to fear the Lord. We want to continue living our lives the way we please. And it's evident in our interests and in our pursuits. If the people of God feared the Lord, we'd read the Bible more than 19% of us. The people of God feared the Lord, we'd read more than three minutes a day. But the truth is, we don't really fear the Lord. 
But to know the Lord is to know the pathway of life. And the lack of knowledge is not is what not only robs us of God's blessings, but here in Hosea chapter 4, God says that also our children are going to miss out on the blessings of God because of our lack of knowledge. That our lack of fearing the Lord, our lack of pursuing God and being influenced by the truth will keep our children from receiving his blessings. Our children are doomed to suffer the consequences of our decisions rather than reaping the benefit of our blessings because of our knowledge. I mean, think about it. You grew up in a home where the parents divorced. How did you feel about that? Did you feel blessed or did you feel cursed. When we make decisions, especially as parents, we pass down the consequences of those decisions to our children. And often our decisions will lead them either to be blessed or to be cursed. This is why in, in Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon writes, there's a cry for wisdom in the streets. Wisdom is parading through the streets, crying out for people to receive it. And Solomon writes here in chapter one that wisdom is going throughout the world, just begging people to hear, to receive wisdom, to pursue wisdom. And I would dare to say that because this is written in the word of God, God is crying out to his people that we would receive wisdom in our very own hearts. But the question is, is will we listen? Will we give wisdom our ear? Will we pursue wisdom? Again, last week we discovered that the foundation or beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That is a deep reverence and hunger to honor him, to know him, and to give him space to speak in our lives. To give him permission to rock the boat in our lives, to redirect us in what we think and what we feel and what we know. But as we can see from the latest statistics, and these statistics don't lie, it's not like people are making this up, it's, it's reality, hunger for the Lord is severely lacking even in the church. The fear of the Lord is not on the daily agenda of most people. As I was reading in my quiet time this week in Genesis, I try to read through the Bible every year. I got finished with the Bible in Revelation. So in January, I started, or in December, I finished Revelation. So in January, I began in Genesis. And this week, I was reading about Abraham and the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham uh, waited till he was like 90-some years old, and God finally gave him a son with his wife. And after the son became a young man, God came to him and said, hey, I want you to honor me. Show me how much you honor me by sacrificing your only son you know, to me. And of course, you know, we look at that story and be like, man, what, what kind of a request is that? But we know God's intention was not to have Isaac actually die. It was just to try Abraham's faith. And so Abraham honors the Lord. He gets the sacrifice and everything ready. Uh, he takes his son up to the mountain with the wood and makes the altar. And we know the story is uh, there. It's a very famous story. But what is interesting to me about that is Abraham's faith was such that whenever the servants asked, you know, where are you going? He doesn't say, well, I'm going up to kill my son. He tells the servants, I'm going up to worship the Lord. Me and my son will come back. We'll return together. And whenever Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, where's the sacrifice? He didn't say, you're it, buddy. Sorry. I don't know what to tell you. You know, no, he said, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. Abraham feared the Lord enough to obey him, but he also knew the Lord and knew what kind of God he served, that God would not ask him to do such an evil 
thing. And as Abraham makes the altar, he prepares the fire, he binds his son, he gets to the point where he's like, okay, God's not intervened yet. I see no sacrifice. I'm going to keep going until God does something. He gets to the point of even raising the knife. Like if you think of the Mission Impossible movies and how, you know, Ethan Hunt is dangling for his life and the, the countdown on the bomb is counting down. It gets to like not even one second. It's like one like millisecond that in before he defuses the bomb. This is what God was doing. He was like waiting for the most tense moment where Abraham's getting ready to throw that knife into his son and the angel appears and stops him. And in Genesis 22 verses 12 through 18, here's what the story records. In verse 12, the angel says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you what? What's he say? That you truly fear God. Think, think about what just happened. Kill your son. Abraham says, okay, I'm going to go through with it. And unless you stop me, it's going to happen. He feared the Lord. He revered the Lord. He obeyed even the most difficult and incredible request. And the angel says, you have not withheld from me even your son, his most precious and prized son. I imagine even in Abraham's mind, he thought, oh, God, take me, not my son, when God asked him. But he said, this is what God wants. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to withhold anything from the Lord. I'm going to give everything, even my best, my greatest, my most prized, whatever God wants, he can have. And he offered even his son to the Lord. And because of that, verse 16 says, this is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name, because God can't swear by anything greater. There's nothing greater than his name. It says, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and throughout your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. A deep reverence and honor for God is the beginning of growing in your faith. What we need to understand is that the fear of the Lord is not a concept to keep us subservient to an all-powerful God. What we can see here, even in the story of Abraham, is that the fear of the Lord is the doorway that opens for God to rain blessings down into our life. That when we fear the Lord, when we pursue wisdom, when we seek knowledge, this is what God uses to rain blessings into our life. Do you know that God wants to bless you? Like so often we think, man, I got to pray. I got to be so good. I got to try to convince God to bless me. No, God wants to bless you. He's a good father. He's a good daddy. He's ready to bless you. He's probably blessed you today and you didn't even recognize it. I mean, you got here without an accident, right? That's a blessing, right? You know, you know, he's blessed you. He's constantly blessing. He wants to bless you. And the more we fear him, the more we learn to honor and, and to honor him with our lives and to know him, the more he can bless us. He wants to bless us. He's a good, good father. But what gets in the way of his blessing many times are our priorities, what gets in the way of his blessing are our priorities. We're not prioritizing him. We're prioritizing ourselves. 
We're prioritizing other things. And why do we prioritize other things? It's because of our influences. The people that are allowed to speak into our lives, the mediums we allow to speak into our lives that send a different message than what, what God would have us to think and believe. Messages that influence our emotions to lead us to believe what is contradictory to the very word of God. And this is why Paul, in the New Testament, Romans 12, 2, said we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds need to be like rewired and reconnected to the very truth of God because this world has programmed us to think and to feel a certain way. It's inundated us with false messages that give us a mirage of blessing, but ultimately lead to dysfunction, pain, and struggle. It's like chasing a mirage out in the desert. You see water, but you never find it. So in Proverbs 1, as Solomon is writing this to his son, and we can see God writing this to even Jesus or even the father to us as his children, this father begins a plea to his son, beginning in verse 8, to guard our influences. And we're going to read this, this letter from a father to the son. I want you to hear the father's voice to you as a son or daughter of the Most High God, as God writing this to you personally. In verse 8, here's what he says. He says, my child, listen when your father corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instruction. What you learn from them will crown you with grace and be a chain of honor around your neck. You see, it wasn't just in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. The only commandment actually with a blessing attached to it said, if you do this, your days will be many and long upon the earth. But our parents are our spiritual covering. They've been given to us by God to guide, to guard, to nurture, to help us grow, to be successful human beings. And God's will is that we would have godly offspring. So not just be successful in life, but, but live to live for the glory of God. Our parents are there to help us to learn from their mistakes so we don't make our own mistakes. We should honor and respect our parents, especially when we're young, because too many foolish decisions are made in our youth. Can I get an amen? Anybody making a mistake when they're young? Yeah, made a lot of them. If we let our parents be our primary influence rather than our friends, especially if they were godly parents, then we may not have made some of those mistakes. We might have been able to avoid some of those hardships later in life. But I'll give you my own personal testimony. I thought my parents were morons when I was growing up. I thought they were stupid. I'm like, I didn't listen to you. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how I feel. You don't know what I'm going through. And now as I'm a father of a 12-year-old daughter, I'm thinking, I don't feel like it's been that long since I was your age, you know? So I'm pretty sure I think I know how you feel, you know? But I, I didn't think my parents even had a clue, and most of us don't. And we don't let that spiritual covering be our influence. We allow friends who are the same age who also know nothing be our influence. It's also unfortunate that not everyone has godly parents to raise them. Some of us didn't grow up in a Christian home. Some of us grew up in a broken home. Some of us grew up in an abusive home, which is why our true father, our heavenly father, left us this book of wisdom and influence right here in the book of Proverbs so that we could grow and still be blessed in spite of those situations, in spite of unfortunate circumstances. He left us, left us his word. 
So as we're reading this, again, this is from the father to his children. In verse 10, just listen to these words as God is speaking to you directly. He says, my child, if sinners entice you, turn your back on them. They may say, come and join us. Let's hide and kill someone just for fun. Let's ambush the innocent. Let's swallow them alive like the grave. Let's swallow them whole like those who go down to the pit of death. Think of the great things we'll get. Fill our houses with all the stuff we take. Come throw in your lot with us. We'll all share the loot. My child, don't go along with them. Stay far away from their paths. They rush to commit evil deeds. They hurry to commit murder. If a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. But these people set an ambush even for themselves. They're trying to get themselves killed. Such is the faith of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. One of the strongest forms of pressure in this life is peer pressure. That's often a message we talk to kids about, but you know what? Adults are just as susceptible to peer pressure as children are. Even for adults, we're swayed under the fear of embarrassment or rejection. You get alone with somebody you shouldn't be alone with, and you're afraid, well, what if they think this about me? So you end up doing stuff with them you didn't really want to do, but you do it anyway. There are things that we do, even as adults. We often crumble under the pressure of others in a moment when we know we should be standing firm and doing what is right. I heard a, a, an evangelist say one time, it's better to say I'm not going to the party than I'm not going to get drunk when I get there or I'm not going to give in to temptation when I get there. There are things we know we should do, but often because of the pressure of our peers, we give in to those pressures. But here, our Father, our God, has said to us that even a bird, when it sees a trap being set, knows to stay away. I love that. Even a bird knows when you're setting a trap, I ain't going anywhere near that. But there are so many traps our enemy sets for us to try to take us down. There's so many traps that the devil right now is setting in your life to help bring dysfunction and destruction. Jesus said he comes but for to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. He, does, he means nothing but harm for your life, for your life, for your kid's life, for your entire legacy. He means nothing but destruction, and he's setting traps to take you down. And there are many pressures from the influences we allow in our lives that are not for any other reason but to bring destruction in our lives. Now, we might not feel pressure to kill someone unless we live in downtown Flint and we're running the drug game. And, you know, I was listening to a friend that I work with at the construction company who said that, you know, the people in Flint that get murdered, they get murdered not just because of random violence. It's because somebody had a beef with them and it's generally over drugs. And if you're into drugs or alcohol or you have addictions, that life can come upon you very easily. And one day find yourself on the other end of a gun, if not pulling the trigger by yourself. It's not something far removed where we think, well, I'd never kill somebody. Yeah, you make a few wrong decisions, you might find yourself right there. Many people do. There are many traps and lures that the enemy sets, like living life in the fast lane, life fueled by the party. 
We long to be accepted and to, to find someone that's just going to complete us or to be accepted by this group of friends. And so we start living this party life and we realize, you know what, I, I just can't have a good time without getting wasted. And now that marijuana has been legalized, we're only going to see an increase. The police chief has already told me, you know, I'm glad you started that Celebrate Recovery because you guys are going to, you're going to be full before you know it with this new law. Our police departments are worried out of their minds about what this is going to mean. They're already looking at Colorado and their human health and human services department can't even um, comprehend or maintain the workload now because of the new marijuana laws. So, I mean, addictions, and I mean, it's only going to increase. But the enemy, he lures us with that fast lane life that, you know, without you know, getting wasted or getting drunk or getting hammered, I can't have a good time. And so, you know, let's go indulge in that. That looks fun. Let's go indulge in that. Or that's a good time. Let's go indulge in that. Let's go to the club and just engage with sex. Whoever will, you know, give us the opportunity, whoever takes our advances. We're enticed by our culture that engages in practices that will lead us to trouble in our lives because it abuses the very thing God made and intended to bring blessing into our lives. You see, marijuana, it can be used as a medicine. It can be used for very good purpose. But when abused, it's very devastating. And that's what the enemy does. He lies and deceives to make us think we're pursuing something that's good, but ends as a result to destroy our lives. After following these influences, we wake up one day and we wonder, man, how did I get here? And if you have that moment where you wake up and you think, man, how did I get to this place? What happened in my life that I would get here? Maybe you woke up on the bathroom floor after a night of vom vomiting because of too much alcohol. Maybe you woke up in a bed next to a stranger you didn't know because of a party the night before. Maybe you woke up to a house with a broken family wondering, where did I go wrong? But the truth is, is that if we had feared the Lord, if we had answered wisdom's call, at that moment, we would not be at our lowest point. We wouldn't be waking to, man, how did I get here? We'd be waking to a blessed life, a life filled with joy and purpose and strength to endure every trouble in any circumstance. See, this world and this culture influence us in, in so many ways, and it puts pressure on us, especially as believers in Jesus Christ, to reject the Word of God and even embrace its philosophies and customs. Uh, there's a um, Christian artist that my family, we love listening to. Her music is great. Her name's Lauren Daigle. And recently, she's kind of made a circuit in, in the uh, you know, the secular world. She's been invited on many different talk shows and, and, um, and, and the light night, you know, nighttime talk shows. It's awesome for her career, but she was asked on a radio broadcast if homosexuality was a sin. And the reason why she was asked that, I believe, is because that is a hot button issue in our culture. And usually Christians are asked that question in order to either discredit them or paint them as a bigot in our society. It's, it's usually the case. It's usually what happens. You watch any show that's normally what happens. And here, Lauren Daigle, a very popular, she sings a lot of worship songs. We sing some of her songs at Christmas time and, and during the year. Here's what she said. She said, I can't honestly answer that. Is homosexuality a sin? I can't honestly answer that. In a sense, I have too many people that I love that are homosexual. I don't know. I actually had a conversation with someone last night about it. I can't say one way or another. I'm not God. 
She then later says, you know, I usually tell people go read the Bible and then you come tell me what it says because I don't know. And what this reveals to us, and again, she's kind of speaking for all of Christianity because she represents you know, you know, this figure in Christian music. What this reveals to us is that we are so easily influenced by our culture to think that feeling or agreeing with what the Bible says is wrong. That if we agree with what the Bible says, that we're somehow evil or we're somehow wrong or old-fashioned or bigoted or mean-spirited. And that is a powerful, influential pressure. It's a powerful pressure that many people cave under. If we do not hunger for the Word of God, the presence of God, to grow in wisdom, we will be so easily deceived and taken off course, off the road to blessing and on the road to struggle. But the issue here is, and really the issue is that it's not about whether or not homosexuality is a sin or transgenderism is a sin. There are a lot of sins in the Bible. You know, did you know lying is a sin? You guys know that? Lying is a sin? Is it then mean-spirited and bigoted to say lying is a sin? No, because I'm pretty 100% sure every human being on the face of the planet has lied at some point in their life. If you say you haven't, you're probably lying at that point. You know, it's just the truth. So saying lying is a sin doesn't mean we're hating the world. It's just calling sin a sin. It's about declaring what the Bible says is true. So it's just logical to uh, just to believe that. But the deal is, is that it's not an issue whether homosexuality or any of that stuff is a sin. The actual issue is whether or not Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That's the issue. Is Jesus Lord and Savior? Is he Lord of your life? If Jesus Christ is Lord, then he's Lord even over your desires and your proclivities. He gets to decide. He gets to lead. He gets to guide. He gets to speak. If he is totally good, as we say he is, as the Bible declares he is, if he is totally good, and all he wants to do is lead us into an everlasting, abundant life, which he said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life, life more abundantly. If God just wants to bless your life, then we will recognize that wisdom leads us to blessing. And if he's leading us away from something, it's because that thing is going to bring destruction and devastation into our life. And the other side of that is going to bring blessing into our life. What he brings is blessing and freedom. What he brings is life and life more abundantly. What he brings is hope and joy and glory and peace. That's what God brings. And what our Father is calling out for us today is that we would seek wisdom and embrace it, beginning with the fear of the Lord and allowing our reverence to be such for Christ that it guards and it guides our influences so we don't end up destroying ourselves or bringing pain on those around us. Because anyone who has followed folly in their lives, understand that one day your sins will find you out. One day, and the writer of Hebrews said, the sin is only pleasurable for a season. One day, sin is not so much fun anymore. It will find you out. And it will get you to that point of realization that if God doesn't intervene, your goose is cooked. I've been in those moments where I thought, God, if you don't come through, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. And that's what is the result of sin. Desperation. And for those who choose the way of folly over wisdom, those who live as rebels against the Lord, who reject God with their lives, who ignore wisdom, when they pass from death to life, they will find themselves 
crying out or praying to a ceiling for help because that cry will fall on deaf ears. The end of folly is destruction and judgment. The father continues in verse 24 of Proverbs chapter 1. He's calling out to the simpleton. He said, I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice. You have rejected the correction I offered. So I will laugh when you are in trouble. I will mock when disaster overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm. When disaster engulfs you like a cyclone and anguish and distress overwhelm you, when they cry for help, I will not answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they will not find me. For they hated knowledge and they chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice. They paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency, but all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by fear of harm. John says in the New Testament, if we fear, it's because we fear the judgment of God, but perfect love casts out all fear. The end of folly is destruction. If you know the Lord, if you revere the Lord, if you honor God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will have no fear of judgment because your sins will be forgiven and nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. But if you don't choose to follow the Lord and give him your heart, there is fear. And the end of folly is destruction. Again, the enemy has laid many traps, but it will be the wise that see them from afar and avoid them. But the foolish will continue on and be ensnared. And one of the major traps he sets for us are our influences. One of the things that struck me this week was really a revelation of a cultural influence that I was just blind to for a long time. And maybe I knew about this before, but I just didn't really give it any relevance in my life until really God just opened my eyes. And man, I felt so convicted. I was like, man, I got to do something about this. This is, I, I just can't continue to, to live like this or, or support this anymore. But I have a really nice athletic hoodie and a, another pullover by a certain company um, that I'm not going to name because we're on camera, but we're not, but uh, they're so comfortable. And I like living these things. My wife would tell you, you know, that I should like find something else to wear, but I'm like, why? These are comfortable. I'm just going to wear this over and over again. But uh, as I was doing some studying this week, I found out that this company was actually named after a pagan god of victory. It is a winged goddess of the Greeks and Romans closely par partnered with the you know, false god Zeus. It was leaked to a demon god we read of in the Bible called Asherah that was linked to all sorts of abominable uh, worship practices in scripture. But in this mythology, Zeus promised this false god to live forever. And in an article by GreekGodsAndGoddesses.net, they cite that in keeping with Zeus's promise to live forever as the goddess of speed, strength, and victory, people of all ages have the opportunity to wear this company's shoes. As proof of the power of this goddess, many sports stars maintain they owe their success to this company. 30% of all sports footwear sales belong to this particular company. And the founders of this company actually started as something else, but then they rebranded their company to reflect this goddess after... Um, you know, recognizing what she stood for. And they chose to honor this goddess, his name, uh, on purpose, and hoping that her prowess would help infuse their company and influence their company. And the world and the culture, as we look at this and say, 
you know, this, you know, this is just a brand. This is just a name. It's just a clothing line. What's the big deal? What's the big deal with, with wearing clothes that have this, you know, emblem on it? And I would have probably said that a few years ago. But the thing about pagan idols that we need to recognize in the scripture is God says something very specific about it. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 and 17, this is a record of what happened in the nation of Israel when they strayed from the Lord. In verse 16, it says, They stirred up jealousy by worshiping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons, which are not God, to gods they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived, to gods their ancestors had never feared. So the nation of Israel, they, they, they kind of strayed away from God. They started worshiping false idols, false gods. And here, what the Bible is revealing to us is that these just aren't wooden or golden statues that they were bowing down to. That there was a demonic force behind every idol, or every false god that they had. These gods of foreign nations were actually demons that they were worshiping. What this reveals to us is that these pagan idols, as we read this and we kind of view it as mythology, these pagan idols weren't just myths or figments of somebody's imagination, but there was a demon spirit behind each and every one of these, siphoning the worship of men away from God and pointing it towards the devil himself or this demon that was setting itself up as a god. So this goddess of war, specializing in speed and strength, was not just... Uh, a cool illustration like the Marvel comics or anything that we have today. It was actually a demon spirit that was demanding worship from mankind in ancient times. And this goddess of war, specializing in speed and strength, has its symbol proudly displayed on shirts and pants and shoes of countless people all over the world, Christian and non-Christian alike. And I kind of had this wake-up moment as I was realizing this, like, man, I'm bearing the image of a demon on my chest and I'm not even caring about it. I'm bearing this name. Like when my, my life is given to Christ, I'm a child of God. There's only one name that I serve, that I honor, that I revere, and that is Jesus Christ. But yet I'm wearing proudly this, this image of this demon on my chest and so I started looking at some verses, and, and I read this week in Judges 3-7, again, Israel had gotten away from the Lord, and it says they did what was right in their own sight, verse 7, that they just did whatever they wanted to do. They Whatever felt good, they did it. Whatever they thought of, they did it. Whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, they just did. And it says something specific here. It says they forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the what? The images of Baal. Baal is where we get Beelzebub, the devil. They served the images of the devil and the Asherah poles. And there's Asherah showing up in connection to this other goddess. So what were the nation of Israel doing? They were serving the images. They served them. They promoted them. They promptly displayed them. They incorporated them into the very fabric of their society. These demons became a household name. Why? because the people didn't guard their influences. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't revere the Lord. They didn't honor God. And they allowed the enemy to creep, on, creep in and make demonic figures household names. 
and they supported and represented. You can read in the, in the book of Judges when God calls Gideon to free the nation of Israel from their oppressors. The first thing he does after being anointed by God is go break down the, the pagan idols in his father's backyard. And the city comes out and wants to know what happened to these altars, and they wanted to kill Gideon because of it. The devil has a way of subtly and deceptively creeping into society and getting us to worship him either through proaction or inaction. In Exodus chapter 23, 24 through 25, here's what God commands Israel. He says, you must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. Another translation says you must utterly burn everything associated with them. In other words, God is telling Israel to guard your influences. Don't let anything remain in your life or even in your land that could pull your heart away. Do not honor demons, but get rid of any and every demonic influence that you have in your life. He tells them, don't even keep the jewels off the idols, even if they're pretty. Anything associated with these demonic forces, get them out. Why? Verse 25, you must serve only the Lord your God. You must serve only God. And what happens if you do? He says, I will what? Bless you. I will bless you with food and with water, and I will protect you from illness. You see, church, God wants to bless you. But Satan wants to destroy you. God wants to bless your life, but Satan wants to creep in and destroy you. Our Father is a good Father who wants to bring good things into your life. Wisdom is calling in the streets for all who will listen, but the enemy is subtly and slithering his way into our homes looking for every opportunity to lead us astray. He does it in obvious and less than obvious ways. He does it through strong temptation and peer and societal pressure, and he also does it through subtle deception that we overlook or miss altogether. If we do not guard our influences and make sure we're thinking on the right things, that we're choosing to follow God's ways, believing in his word, seeking his face, worshiping him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, him and him alone, we may forfeit the very good things that he's planned for our lives. We may forfeit the blessing that he wants to pour out in our lives. So the question today, church, is are you the simpleton or are you the wise? Who or what's been speaking into your life? Where's the majority of your influence coming from? Is it coming from screen time, media, television, the world? Or is it coming from the presence and word of God? What are you supporting that grieves the Father's heart? And what are you rejecting that grieves the Father's heart? Do you know the Father's heart? Questions to reflect on today. So what are the areas in your life that you've allowed the influences of the world to lead you? Have you considered God and sought God in the way you've set up your home? whether the husband should work or the wife should work or how, you, how are you going to run your finances? Have you considered God 
and consider God in the way that you're going to parent or are parenting or how you're doing your money or spending your money. Have you sought God in your relationships and whether or not your relationship even honors God? Do you even know what he says about these things? Do you care? Number two, what beliefs in your life do you need to be transformed by seeking wisdom from the Word of God? Paul in Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I listened to a podcast this week, and the speaker said that when they were meditating on that verse, it says, do not be conformed to the behaviors and customs of this world or patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the speaker said, God spoke to me and said, do you want to be transformed? And she said, yes, yes, I do. And then he said, what pattern of this world do you want to be responsible for undoing? What pattern of this world do you then want to be responsible for undoing? As I'm transforming you, I'm transforming you out of a culture, pulling you out of a culture to then engage culture. What pattern do you want to help me reverse? And that struck me because I'm like, it's not just that we think the right theology, is that we believe the right things, is that we then go out into the world and then be hands and feet of Jesus, be light and hope. It's not enough to just hear a message and feel good and go home and say, oh man, wasn't that good. It's then to take that message out on the street and be a champion for light, to help wisdom call out into the streets and call people lost in confusion and in darkness to receive the hope that they can find in Jesus Christ, to undo patterns of brokenness. Maybe it's a divorce or broken homes. Maybe it's human trafficking. Maybe it's the foster care system. Maybe it's the drugs and, and the issue that we have there. Whatever it is, what pattern of this world do you want to help God reverse? Are you even interested in that? What beliefs in your life do you need to have transformed by seeking wisdom from God? And more importantly, finally, as we come to a close, what is the Spirit of God speaking to you right now? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment. And let's just ask the Lord, Spirit, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? Maybe you need a relationship with God, or maybe you need to be more connected to your church family. Maybe you need to disconnect from social media and connect socially to the people of God he's put in your life. Maybe not just skimming your Bible, but you need to read it. You need to study it. You need to seek God in his word. Maybe he's telling you, you need to begin a life of prayer and meditation. That you need to cultivate a hunger for God. Whatever the Spirit is speaking to you in this moment, as we go into a time of response, I'm going to challenge you, church. Don't stay the same. Don't stay in your seat. This front of the auditorium, we just turn into an old-fashioned altar. If you imagine Israel laying their sacrifice on the altar, offering it to God, you come and you lay yourself down at God's feet and say, God, I know your spirit is speaking to me in this area. Forgive me for neglecting this. I'm seeking wisdom today. Speak to me, lead me, teach me, help me grow 
in this area of my life. On the count of three, when I when I ask us to stand, whatever God is speaking to your life, don't stay in your seat. Come forward, lay yourself down as an act of faith. Lay yourself down. Kneel at, at this front of the stage or in the chairs, whatever you got to do, but give yourself to God. And let today be the day of spiritual growth. Let the day be today where God begins to raise up your faith. Let today be the day where your life begins to change as he begins to transform who you are and help you realize what his heart is for you. Father, I just pray for everyone here today as we now just lay ourselves at your feet. Spirit, come, move, work, move miracles, do move mountains, do miracles. God, whatever it is you have to do, Give us the faith to respond in Jesus' name. On the count of three, let's stand and you respond. One, two, three. Come on.